Hello, and welcome. My name is Christy Potter, and I'm the director of the January series, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the January series 2020. It is good to be together. <laughs> Thank you. So this is our 33rd year of offering the January series, uh, but it's our first as Calvin University, so we're excited about that. And we are so grateful to all of our amazing sponsors who help bring these daily lectures day after day for free to our community. So in particular today on our opening day, I'd like to thank Baker Publishing and the Doug and Maria DeVos Foundation for being our series partners and Meyer Incorporated for being our community partner. We couldn't do this without their support. So I hope you find ways to thank them as well. Before we get started, I have just a couple of housekeeping items to take care of. Details about silencing your phones and submitting questions at the end during the Q&A time will be um, offered each day on a recording before we get started, so we won't repeat it each day, but please pay, make note of that. And Kelvin students, be sure to pick up your January series passport and get it stamped each day at the box office in the lobby after each presentation that you attend for some chance to win autographed books and some night bucks. And now Kelvin student Janelle Veldheisen will get us started. Enjoy the series. Good afternoon and welcome to today's installment of the January series. My name is Janelle Veldheisen and I'm a junior from Byron Center, Michigan studying speech pathology. I'm also a member of the women's volleyball team here at Kelvin. Please take a moment to silence your cell phones, and as you're doing so, I want to welcome guests from 60 of our remote viewing sites, including Whitehall, Michigan, Asheville, North Carolina, Scottsdale, Arizona, and Bellflower, California. We're so grateful that you're viewing with us today. Now please join me as we open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you with grateful hearts for a new year and for new opportunities to learn. I thank you that you created each of us so differently to pursue different passions and to reflect your character in different ways. I thank you specifically for the way that my coach reflects who you are through her incredible leadership skills and through the way that she loves people with her entire heart. I pray that you would calm any nerves that she may have and that you would speak clearly through her as I have heard you do so many times before. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for the faithful Father that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. And now Michael O'Roy, president of Calvin University, will introduce our guest. Good afternoon and welcome. On behalf of Calvin University in the 2020 January series, Calvin is grateful this year to Howard Miller for underwriting today's presentation. We wouldn't be able to do these wonderful lectures without the support of our sponsors. Today it's an honor for me to be able to introduce the speaker, Dr. Amber Warners. We're used to cheering her on from the sidelines and along with her team, but today we get to cheer her on personally, and it is a singular joy for me to introduce one of our own. Amber is a Calvin professor of kinesiology, a former head softball coach, and the current coach of our women's volleyball team, our decorated women's volleyball team. After serving as the leader of Calvin Volleyball for 18 years, Amber has accumulated the leading winning percentage among all active coaches in NCAA Division III Volleyball. You, amazing. Amazing. Under Amber's direction, Calvin has won three national volleyball championships. Our students look up to her and admire her as a remarkable coach, a formative teacher, and an exemplary leader. It's no wonder that during the course of her career she's been honored as the AVCA Division III National Coach of the Year, as well as Great Lakes Regional Coach of the Year, an accolade she has earned three times. Amazing. Amber's success at Calvin began as a student on campus, she excelled in studying physical education while having masterful seasons in volleyball and softball. Her teams made their mark by winning six MIAA championships and earning six NCAA Division III tournament bids. And to think, she pondered going to Hope. <laughs> Amber went on from Calvin to earn a master's degree and a PhD from Michigan State University 
One thing you may not know about Amber is that she is a masterful researcher as well, always serious about the science behind sports performance, and you'll hopefully hear a little bit about that work today. Like the students who take her courses and the athletes who play under her direction, I too could continue to share praises for Amber's work and accomplishments, but you're looking forward to what I'm looking forward to, and that is getting to hear from her. So instead, I'll take the opportunity to invite Amber herself to share with us her wisdom and experience in her lecture entitled The Fierce Humility of Winning. Please join me in thanking uh, Amber and welcoming her to this stage and to this year's January series. Thanks. When I think about all of the rock star people that will be speaking after me, I realize it's highly unusual to have a volleyball coach at a Division III university get asked to speak at a place event like this. Um, and I'm incredibly humbled uh, to be a part of it. And I guess that's kind of the way I approach my job as well. Um, I get to work with some of the best people and student-athletes out there, and I am so grateful to have them in my life. I realize that my title is an interesting one. I want to first acknowledge that talking about humility is a rather awkward subject. It's kind of like the Girl Scout who earns her humble badge and gets it taken away because she wore it. <laughs> and as Tim Keller says, humility is so shy, when you talk about it, it leaves the room. Almost all of us would say that humility is something that we need to have, but do we really know what it is? And most of us think it is a virtue that is heavy, unjoyful, and even boring, but not everybody agrees with that. C.S. Lewis says, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. And Tim Keller says, there's nothing more relaxing than humility. And as he explains, pride grumbles at everything, but humility can joyfully receive life as a gift. Pastor Gavin Ortland wrote that we look at humility as an impossible burden, but in reality, it is light as a feather. It is pride that makes life gray and drab, and humility brings out the color. So why do most of us look at it like this? According to him, we simply don't understand what it is. He first says that humility is not hiding your gifts and talents. God doesn't want us to hide our talents. He wants us to develop them so we can glorify him. One could argue that if we don't develop our talents, it's almost the reverse of showing humility because the focus goes back on ourselves. He says that humility is also not self-hatred. Many people in our society struggle with a sense of shame, inferiority, and a lack of self-worth. We must sharply distinguish such feelings from the goal of humility. It will never rob us of our dignity as image bearers of God. So if humility is not hiding your gifts and it's not self-hatred, then what is it? According to Tim Keller, it's simply self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And self-forgetfulness will then lead to joy. So what does humility have to do with winning? To me, everything. It has to do with focusing on others before ourselves, which results in serving one another in all capacities to help the team in whatever is needed. It has to do with working hard to develop our gifts that are given to us by God despite the constant messages we receive from the world that it should be us to be the ones to take the credit. It has to do with having inner confidence to be our best. And it has to do with playing with joy while we play under some pretty high pressure. So to me, when talking about what we are trying to do in our volleyball program, there is no better title than the fierce humility of winning. Because as Christian coaches and players, these are the concepts that we have had to cling to in order to navigate through the success we have experienced over the past decade. Before I talk about what we do in our program, I would like to tell you a few things about myself as a coach and explain my philosophy. 
Many of you have come and watched our teams play, and some of you have probably even never heard of us. One of the first things someone comments to me after they come and watch a match for the first time is how calm I am on the bench. This is me on the bench. <laughs> this is me almost the whole match. Well, let me tell you, looks can be deceiving. There are some times that I actually feel like this. <laughs> now, one of the things about coaching college students is you kind of have to get in their world. So I have to stay connected to social media. I will never understand the big deal about Snapchat. I'm told it's more of a casual conversation way to communicate as opposed to texting. I still don't get that. Anyway, for those of you that don't know, this is considered a GIF. Not to be mixed up with a gift we get at Christmas time. And some people pronounce it GIF, which is not to be confused with GIF the peanut butter. <laughs> so I decided, I thought, you know what, it'd be really interesting to ask my players how they feel, what they see from me and feel from me in the middle of a really high-stakes match. And so this is me again, just another match. And I'm just sharing with a few of you what they, how they responded. So this is what they said, Coach would, this is how, what we think that you are feeling at the time. This is the first one. I like that. <laughs> and I really like this one. Kind of has a night feel, right? I'm locked in. And I'll just share one more. I like that too. <laughs> what I love about these is maybe you don't feel it, but the people that need to feel it in a match are feeling these things and I'm portraying these things even though you think I'm just sitting, sitting there and doing nothing. Okay, another thing that I think you, well, you know now from the introduction is my degree is in sports psychology. My passion is figuring out how individuals and groups tick and how I can help get the most of them individually and collectively. I also love the challenge of helping people to perform at their very best in the midst of high-pressure situations. Finally, I think you should know about my coaching philosophy and what drives me as a coach, and I have two parts to that. The first part is I want to win. And as a Christian coach, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, we are not a okay? We are our competitive athletic team, and the idea and the goal is to win, and that's what we're going to try to do. And we actually don't even talk about winning much. When I break that down, it means being on the cutting edge of volleyball training and strategy. It means having the best team chemistry and culture that we can be because that's going to help us win more and it's way more fun. It means incorporating mentality training into everything we do so our players feel equipped in pressure-filled moments. We look at winning as a product or result of how we do things right every day. We want to look back on every moment we have together and be able to say we don't have any regret on being able to do anything better. The second part of my philosophy is that I want our players to grow in every area of their life. When they walk away from our program, I want them to be able to say, I'm the best volleyball player I could be given the Division III restrictions. I am the best student I could have been. My faith is stronger, and I am a better friend, sister, daughter, maybe wife or mom someday because they played in our program. Both of these two parts drive me in how we do things. While one is much more important in the big picture of life, I want to shoot for the top in both. That means we are going to do everything in our power to get to the results that we want. It means we are going to love and care for every player, no matter how good they are at volleyball or what their rank is on the team. It also means we are going to play the people that are going to help us win the most. There is no equality when it comes to playing time. And I think it's important for you to know that our program is one of the most loving environments and at the same time, one of the most cutthroat environments that I have ever been a part of. 
I would like to spend the next several minutes giving you a glimpse into what Calvin Volleyball is like from what I call inside our bubble. But before I do that, I'm going to show you a short video of who we are over the past several years. And I would like to just give a special thanks to Lawrence Bremner for creating this video for this presentation. Uh, just another Manic Monday here. National champions, how about that? It's unbelievable. Um, it's hard to describe your emotions. We're done and we did it. It's kind of a surreal experience, but very, very happy. Um, I have never had a group that has fought for each point in practice the way, do the, the way they do. And they are playing every practice like we're going for the national championship. And little did I know that that would actually happen. We are at match point. Here's Rita Moe. Yes. There's the national championship. Calvin College for the first time. And they're going crazy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> Somebody says to me, you know, how, what, how do you measure success? I think one of the things I would say is when you have your seniors that give absolutely everything a part of themselves um, and, and walk away and say, I can't give anymore, and I don't mean that just on the court. In fact, you see us, people watch us every match. They see us 5% of the time during our season, and what these women have given um, is it's just unbelievable their buy-in. It's been a really big learning experience for me. You really need to make the most of it and embrace every day because it's more than just um, the trophies and things like that. We've told them the whole season that if they could only believe how good, talented they really are, they would just absolutely hammer um, people. And, um, and it's a game of momentum swings. They just rose to every challenge we gave them. And that, is, that takes a lot of courage to do that. That's not easy. It is not easy to win. Um, the resiliency is something that I'll take away. And I think also um, I wish people could know the character behind the player because we have 20 women who have incredible character. We are, we're, we're genuinely cheering on our teammates. We want the success of the team over um, our individual selves. And so it makes for a lot of fun for us and a lot of encouragement for the people on the, the floor too. Vulnerability is the core, the heart the center of meaningful human experience. Amber and her coaching staff created that environment by developing deep connections with the team and with each other. Heidi, I was watching you and I think one of the things I noticed, well, I stood out was your freshman. Um, and I don't think you had an error until that fifth set, uh, ending with 21 kills. Um, what was working for you offensively and what did you see out there and what made you I guess as a first year, have such composure um, in those tough sets. I think what really like willed me towards just playing my hardest was these four girls right here. I just wanted to play for them. This was their last season, and I just wanted to go all out for them. Each player has handled the success of each other really well, um, so I think it's been really cool to see how we support one another. A player on our 2010 team recently interviewed for a job at a, the leading office furniture manufacturing company in the United States. And he asked, the interviewer asked her to describe what it takes to win a national championship in just one word. She thought about it, and her word was love. Laura, you started your career with a national championship, and now you end one year with a championship. Can you talk a little bit about that? This is great, but these girls and like this program is, I'll forget all about this game, but I'll remember all the moments and time that I have with these girls. I've learned that your team has to love and embrace walking on the cliff. I've learned there's no magic pill, special potion, series of drills, or a plan to follow. There is a lot of hard work, a team of special women who buy into what you're trying to do, a little luck, a lot of courage from both players and coaches, and sometimes seamless, unrealistic expectations. I've learned it takes more than talent and knowing X's and O's to win a national championship.
I'm going to talk about five core values that we strive to live by. We've been doing these things long before we won our first national championship, and we're going to continue to do them no matter if we're going to win another one or not. The first one is work. We demand a lot from our women, and they work really hard. Most of you would assume that means they're in great physical shape, and they are, but it also means we push them to the edge emotionally and mentally as well. We hold them to a standard in everything, from how hard they work on the court to how they treat one another and invest in one another. How do we do this? Um, I could give you lots of examples. Uh, the one I'm going to give you is about our preseason uh, workout. We send a workout out, and they need to come in in August, and they need to be able to win nine challenges. Every challenge is, has an, is named after an opponent in the MIAA. So we, our idea is if we can win all these challenges, we're going to win the league before we even start. Um, not all of these challenges are physical. So there is an Adrian letter of recommendation where the women have to write a letter of reference about themselves in third person, and every class has to answer certain questions, what they can contribute, and why they should be on the team. There is the Olivet Partner Challenge, and where we pair a returner up with a freshman. And there's certainly a peer mentoring outcome um, from this, but they also have to get to know one another so well that they answer a 50-question written test about the other person. We have a lot of physical challenges of those nine. I'll just give you one example, one we call the Trine Bridge Run. They have to go up the steps, across the bridge, back down, and, and back again eight times in a row in a certain amount of time. This is not easy. The other thing is, is this is all happening when we're in preseason, so we're practicing about five-plus hours a day on top of doing these challenges. If a player can't win one, they have to retest it. And if they can't win it after they retest it, one of our players who's already won it has to volunteer to win it for them. <clears throat> One of the things that I think comes out of this is it makes our, our women gritty. Okay? Another example is what we do in practices. We want our players to be able to risk and make mistakes in practice. We know that helps them become better. We also sometimes put in drills with unrealistic goals in order for them to push themselves to the edge in all areas. In these moments, we care more about their effort than winning the drill because we want them to learn how to get better after they're being pushed. This is a note that I received from a player a couple years ago, and it just reminded me that we're doing the right thing because she felt like it was okay to make mistakes. When we make mistakes, that's how we learn the most. What is the takeaway to push him in all these areas? As human beings, it's important for us to experience all emotions and learn how to deal with them, even the negative ones. We live in a world where we are trying to shield those negative emotions from our kids. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a mom. The first thing I want to do when one of my sons is hurting or fails at something or makes a mistake is I want to rush in and I want to fix it. And what I've realized is that's the absolute worst thing I could do because they need to navigate, they need to learn how to do that. Um, and so I think our, t our goals is to help people when they make a mistake or they fail, to walk beside them, help them, but not do it for them. The next area is a Buddhist term. There is actually no pronunciation for this word. I say mudita. Some people say mudita. It means being happy for someone else's success. What does this mean for our team? It means being happy for a teammate when they're named player of the week or they have a better stat line. It means shaking hands with our opponents after we've had a really tough loss and looking them in the eye and saying congratulations. Mudita is shown when our bench celebrates after a player on the court earns a point. We have one of the most joyful, genuine benches of anyone that I know. And at the same time, we have players who are very talented, not in the lineup, who could be starting for a lot of other teams. This is not always easy. Um, in 2010, we lost our best player to Mono for three weeks, um, and Rebecca Camp was out of the lineup. 
I asked our starting right side hitter, Julie Hillbrands, to move from the right side to go to the middle because she was our next best middle. I then asked one of our seniors who was on the bench, Kayla Hollenbeck, to, to fill in on the right side for the three weeks. When Becca was finally healthy enough to return, we had this dilemma because Kayla, the one that was normally on the bench, was doing really, really well on the right side, better than we had anticipated. We felt it would be in the best interest of the team to leave Kayla in and put Julia on the bench. We went into that NCAA tournament and Julia never saw one point played on the court. So here's someone who is willing to change positions for a team. Because of that, she found herself on the bench when she needed to fill in that spot anymore. And I have to tell you, Julia was still completely bought in. I am sure it was not easy for her. Julia's spirit and reaction to the situation was one of the best examples of mudita that I have ever seen on a team. The takeaway, it's hard to be happy for other people when they have something that we want. It's not easy to look at someone else and be genuinely happy for them, but we need to celebrate that more. This is true in all areas of our life, no matter what stage of life we're in. The third one is love. Hey, I realize this is a broad term. And what does that mean for us? Okay, it means meeting people where they are at in their life and loving them unconditionally. It means building relationships, spending time with one another. It involves vulnerability. It means loving someone and being loved so much that you can accept criticism from them and you can also be able to speak truth into other people. How do we do this? I could give you a thousand examples, but I'm just going to give you a couple. Um, this year, in the last couple years, I decided that I, our players don't get to get much one-on-one -on -one time with me, so I called these home visits. And I visited every player in their college home for 30 to 45 minutes one-on-one. -on -one. This is a picture of Sydney and Janelle's house when I came back the second time. Um, I thought it was really cute. They put this in their dining room. The other example I'm going to give you is, and we set goals every year. We, have, we set spiritual goals, social goals, academic goals, and volleyball goals. And one of the goals this year was to close down Noel. And what is meant by that, once a week. So they would go to the dining hall, and they would sit, and they would talk, and they would interact and get to know one another until the dining hall closed and they were asked to leave. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea. We use truth and grace when we love. We, and we live by giving one another the benefit of the doubt. Relationships are sticky. Anytime you have a group of people that are also chasing down goals and competing, things get even stickier. And personalities clash. So we address and work through being honest with one another about strengths and weaknesses, and when there are times we need to bring more out of somebody, we talk to them. And when there are things we need them to press pause on more, we talk to them. That's where the truth and grace come in. And it goes both ways. I had a senior in 2009, Katie Corbett. We were talking in my office, and she said to me, Coach, I can tell when you think we're going to lose when you walk into the gym. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, you just have this look about you when I think you think we're going to lose. And I thought about that for a long time. And what I realized was it wasn't that I thought we were going to lose. I think I was um, showing off wrong perception to my players because I was trying to let myself maybe let the fall be a little bit less if we, if we didn't win and pull it out. And I'm so thankful that she talked to me about that because it has taught me that I need to come in and portray a much more strong face and more confidence. When we are vulnerable with one another and walk through life together, side by side, show unconditional love, and have the courage to use grace as well as truth, it allows for a huge layer of trust for people to be the true version of themselves, which helps make the group thrive. The fourth one is servanthood. Showing humility means serving one another and putting ourselves second. It means being givers and not takers. Everyone on our team works on giving back and doing things for one another. On most teams that I know of, the younger players have to do a lot more of the work because they're the newbies. On our team, our seniors do most of the work. 
They, they're the ones that haul the most, and they serve the team the most. Here are a couple examples. Several years ago, um, we go on a retreat the second week of the season, and several years ago, we had a freshman who was really, really homesick. She wasn't getting sleep, um, and she, it, was, she, it was rough. One of our seniors, when we get to the retreat location, there's usually not 25 beds there. So we draw a number to see who gets to choose where they want to sleep first. And the senior got one of the first numbers, and she noticed that this freshman who was homesick got one of the last numbers. And she switched numbers with that freshman because she wanted that freshman to be able to get a good night's sleep because she was so homesick and um, hadn't been getting great sleep. Another example, just two years ago, we came home from a road trip at about 3 a.m. We were exhausted. Everybody wanted to get to their beds. It was raining outside. We pull up to the field house. The routine is people go into the field house, drop our stuff off, and then they disperse to the dorms. The next day, I found out that our senior, Kailana, actually took three loads of, of underclassmen in her car to bring to the dorm at 3 a.m. because she didn't want him to walk in the rain. When underclassmen experience and see how upperclassmen are taking care of them and how they are treated, treat them, they are usually really surprised. And it makes them want to give back more too. This modeling by the older players sets the tone for years to come. In the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins found that the primary trait for successful leaders was servanthood and humility. And the fifth core value is gratitude. Gratitude is the antidote to pride. It is a spiritual discipline to God and to others. We show gratitude in multiple ways and at multiple times. Sometimes we text bomb people. We all write a thank you via a text, put it the person's phone number in our phone, and all press send at once. And I'll tell you, being a recipient of one of these and getting 20 dings in succession on your phone of gratitude and thanks can make you have a pretty good day. Another way we've done it is by doing video thank yous. We've done, we do this in the hotel sometimes. And we just, uh, people want to thank somebody, they do a little video, it's kind of fun to do. Um, and another one is, I was a recipient of this one, this is in my office. I, a couple years ago, I was given 365 notes. Our players got this together, it hardly cost them anything, and I was to pick out one note per day for a whole year. I tell you, it was the highlight of my day walking to my office. This year, we decided to make thank you cards. And so this is what our thank you card ended up looking like. We put our Bible verse on the outside. We made 25 cards for every player. Um, talking about living in today's age, sometimes we have to tell people and show people how to address a snail mail envelope because they don't know. Do you know, as a byproduct of gratitude, physiologically, it gives a stronger immune system, it lowers our blood pressure, and we sleep better. Psychologically, we have higher levels of positive emotions, we're more alert, alive, awake, we have more joy, more optimism, and happiness. And socially, we're more helpful, generous, compassionate, more forgiving, outgoing, less lonely, and isolated, we're more determined, it improves our self-esteem, and we have better mental toughness. I don't know about you, but these are the type of traits that I want my team to have. And what does that have to do with humility? Pastor David Butt says, Gratitude is so important to practical Christian living because it is the key to humility. A lifestyle of gratitude will instill humility deep inside us. We will begin to recognize that all we have and all that we are comes from God. Gratitude helps teach us humility. All five of these core values are interrelated and they build off each other. Love produces gratitude in a servant's heart. Sometimes one leads to another. For example, if I have gratitude and I love someone, I'm going to be happy for them when they do something great. In the example of the nine preseason challenges, when a player can't pass one of them and someone volunteers to pass it for them, we see love, servanthood, disappointment, grace, and gratitude. In the example of Julia, who wasn't in the lineup in postseason, we saw disappointment, truth and love, servanthood, and mudita. 
I also believe the higher the stakes and pressure, the more important these core values are for a team. I have been through many high-pressure tournament runs. At some point during every run, things don't go well on the court. And how a team reacts at that point can make all the difference in the outcome of a match. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it can. And because, of the best, because the best players feel the most pressure to produce, they usually are the ones that start barking and blaming their teammates. In 2010, we were down two games to zero and down 15 to 21 in the third set in the semifinals, national semifinals, against Juniata. I called my last time out. We got in the huddle, and Rebecca Camp, our best player, said, looked at, and at that time, we could not pass the ball. Our back row players just weren't doing a good job for a number of reasons. And instead of Becca looking at them and saying, we, you got to get me the ball, she said, I'm going to block better for you so you know where to go. And it was like this weight lifted off their shoulders. And we ended up crawling our way back in the third. We won the fourth, ended up winning the fifth, and went on to win our first national championship. The comment, that one comment, had a pretty big impact on the outcome of that tournament run. I get asked all the time, what is it we do that makes us so successful? This would be a really good time to acknowledge the most important ingredient to winning is really talent. You have to have the talent, and you also need some luck. Winning is really hard, and you don't win sometimes even when you do everything the right way. In addition, we don't just win because of these core values, and we don't live by these core values just to win. We live by them because they are consistent of the way God wants us to live our lives. But to give a team the best chance to win, having the best culture and team chemistry will allow for members of the team to perform at their very best, and that does help with the result. This is how we pack our punch. This is, how, this is our secret sauce that people ask me about all the time. But what I can't always relay is how much our players buy into these five core values. Many programs have the core values or foundations or pillars that they name and that they stand for, I would argue the difference maker for us is that we have an entire team that lives them. And we aren't perfect at it. Some days we get it right, and some days we get it wrong. But then we apologize and we forgive and we strive to do better. These five core values help equip our players in their daily lives moving forward, long after their Calvin University experience. And they can be applied to any group, families, businesses, schools, churches. What ends up being the final product? A group of people who are brought together learning, playing, living, serving, and being. Doing life together. We are essentially striving every day to simulate living what it would be like in heaven, but living on earth. A few years ago, at the beginning of the season, I gave every member on our team two ping pong balls and a Sharpie marker. And I asked them, Describe what it would look like if our team played our entire season in heaven this year. And here were a couple of the responses. Have complete trust in one another. Unconditional love regardless of mistakes. Being forgiving even for yourself, of yourself. And then from there, we put them in our locker room. We took out one ping pong ball per day at the end of practice. We, we read it. We talked about it. And then we put it up in our locker room so we could be reminded of all the things that we were striving for. We have had some challenges from our success. And I would love to tell you that winning has no negatives. Now, don't get me wrong. I love to win. <laughs> and it is way better than losing. But winning has its own unique challenges. And keep, to keep winning is even harder. Because as a coach, you are dealing with all kinds of other factors that come along with winning, like expectations, pressure, motivation, uh, keeping the same work ethic, lack of confidence, too much confidence, pride. I would like to highlight just a few things we have had to work on, though, and work through. First, I'm going to be really honest with you. The sinful nature in us makes us sometimes want it to be all about us, and it's really difficult to not buy into the world's view on success, especially when you hear it over and over again. 
Striving to live by these core values help keep our perspective and having us think less about ourselves and give the credit to God. We have had to deal with identity issues. We are constantly reminding our players that their main identity should never be defined on that they are always a child of God and they're never defined as being a volleyball player. Our players have an unwritten rule that is passed down from year to year. Never tell anyone at Calvin that you are on the volleyball team. Let people get to know you for who you are first. In time, they might find out, but if they don't, cherish those interactions. We follow God in whatever path our team is led down, even in the most devastating losses. When we win and are successful, you get to put in a spotlight. The bigger the spotlight, the more risk you are now taking to fail. And I used to think God didn't care about winning and losing. In 2000, and I've changed my perspective on that. In 2012, we found ourselves in the national finals, um, and we were ahead two games to zero, and we let it slip away. The other team started to play great. We didn't. And we ended up losing a devastating loss in five sets. And I thought to myself, if I ever get to that point again, and we are fortunate enough to ever get to the finals, I don't know how I'm going to be able to handle that. And we found ourselves in the very exact situation the very next year in the same arena. This time, we were down two games to zero. Um, just to give you a little background, we played a team that had a coach that just didn't want to interact with me all weekend. She actually... Uh, was kind of standoffish. Um, and sometimes that happens. We ended up crawling our way back uh, the third set. We won the fourth set. And as most of you know, the fifth set goes to 15 points. Um, we had six match points that we could have won, and we finally did, winning 20 to 18 in the fifth set with a crowd of about 3,500 people that were cheering for us. I think you saw it in the video. About two weeks later, I get a call from an unknown number, and it was the coach of the opposing team. And her name is Kelly. And Kelly and I, um, she just said, hey, you probably the last person expected to get a hold of you. You're the only person on this earth that I know is, that's dealing exactly with what I'm dealing with because you did it the year before. And I just said to her, the only way I know how to deal with it is just to let God have all the outcomes because he's going to love me either way. And she said, well, that's great for you, but I'm not a Christian. And since then, we have formed a friendship. And in 2017, I got a call one December evening, um, and she was in Hawaii with, she has a daughter and a, a husband. Her daughter's six years old. They, her, and her, her daughter and her husband were snorkeling, and the currents went bad. And somebody got to save Elsie, but they could not save her husband, and he drowned. And she called me three weeks after he died. Sorry, three hours after he died. I don't know why she called me. I certainly wasn't one of her closest friends. I flew out there five days later to be with her. And I'll tell you, it was difficult knowing she's not a Christian and having to help her uh, deal with this and not being able to do much. Since then, she has flown out with Elsie to vacation with us this past summer. And we talk on the phone every single week. I have no idea. I have no idea how the story is going to end. I keep praying that the seeds that are planted, that God's going to grow them. But I'm continually praying that there's going to be a good ending to the story, and I'm going to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Final thoughts. If we would like to grow in humility, the place to start is at the cross. Christ's humiliation is the death of all ego and swagger. There is no room for pride before the crucified Savior, and his fierce humility and eventual exaltation gives us a greater glory to live for that than our own. We are empty vessels for his handiwork. Heaven is roaring with his praise, and one day every knee will bow before him. What a waste to spend our talents on any lesser cause. So fierce humility is not hiding what we can do, but being free to develop the gifts God has given us with the utmost confidence and joy while thinking about ourselves less and about Jesus more. The Calvin College volleyball program and team strives to be the best it can be. 
by putting others first, developing the gifts God has given us, while being grateful and joyful through the journey, and looking to Jesus as our ultimate example of fierce humility, whether we win or whether we lose. Thank you. You come on over. Have a seat. Thank you so much, Amber. So much great uh, material there and so many things to think about. Uh, my name is Rick Truer, and I serve as the Director of Alumni and Community Relations here at Calvin College, and I'll be asking some questions of uh, Coach Warners today. So if you have a question in the audience on a card, feel free to hold that up, and that will be brought forward. Otherwise, you can use uh, Twitter or um, email to send us some questions. We've already received um, one question from someone today, and they asked, uh, was there a major experience that taught you your philosophy of coaching, and how has it changed over the years? I think I've always had the same philosophy, but I've never been able to verbalize it before. Um, I also think that the way, the way we run our program is a gift that I've been given by God. And somebody once told me, that when you really have a gift, um, you don't understand why other people do it, don't do it the same way you do it. And I just don't understand that. So, I mean, I understand that. I don't understand why people don't do it more the way I do it. And I'm not saying that um, to have pride. I just, things come, become second nature. And I think it comes down to managing people, right? I can, if I know all there is to know about volleyball, but I don't know how to manage our players, it's, it's never going to work or work very well. So there's specific things that have changed in the way you coach over the years? There is. I think uh, the student athletes have changed. I see them changing almost every year. So I think as a coach, being able to adapt to how I relate to them, um, keeping things, things fresh and new and doing things different, um, I think has helped, um, and maybe that's more the art of the coaching, but it certainly has changed since I've been 18 years old. So, um, so yes, I think you have to learn how to adapt and do things um, the way they need to be done based on who is on your team. Yeah. This question comes from a viewer out in uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, wondering if you can describe your rec recruiting criteria. Obviously, you look for talent, but do you look for that as, as, well, as well as character or how it has developed primarily? Yes. Uh, that's where the cutthroat part comes in, right? So we turn away women who would be an incredible fit for us in every area except for maybe being good enough to play for us. And that has to be the first criteria. They have to be good enough to play for us. The second criteria is I won't let anybody come in that is going to hurt our culture. I don't care how good they are. Now, that doesn't mean that we haven't had players come in that haven't had to really work through some tough situations. So I try to do a really good job of portraying exactly who we are um, so they know what they're going to get when they come in. And it's usually pretty evident within the first five minutes if they're going to be a good fit for us or not after talking to them. Yeah, I'm sure there can be some very hard conversations within that as well. So um, wondering if you can give an, this came in on Twitter, wondering if you can give an example of mental training uh, that you and your athletes utilize to deal with pressure in games. Sure. So we have, uh, we try to, I could spend two hours talking about this, but basically you can only think one thought at a time. It's not possible to be thinking about missing your serve if you're concentrating on what you need to do maybe with your arm swing when you're preparing to serve. So we have a pre-serve routine that we work with our women on. Um, I'll give you a really quick story. I wasn't able to put it in, um, but in 2016 we were noticing that our players were not following the path of what we wanted to have them do when they were uh, supposed to do their pre-serve routine. And their just serves didn't look as tough and as, as hard as normal. And I pulled them in the middle in the circle at practice and I said, 
On a scale of one to 10, if you were gonna serve the ball one more time, 10 being 100% you believed it going in, zero being you 100% you didn't, what number are you? The lowest number was four, the highest number was eight. And I said, why is that? We have equipped you to, to feel like you can do your normal serve under pressure. And our senior setter, Jenna Lodewijk, was one of the only ones that responded and said, coach, sometimes it just gets in my head. Sometimes I don't think I'm a good server. And we worked and we talked about how at some times you have to choose a 10. It doesn't mean your serve's going in all the time, but you should have the freedom to believe it's going to every single time, be a 10. And we did that one drill, go serve one serve. And we did it between every single drill going into the NCAA tournament for about a week. We got to the NCAA tournament, we found ourselves down 10 to 14 in the fifth set opening round. The other team needed one side out. And guess who goes back to serve? Jenna. She's a senior serving for her career, and she ended up serving six serves in a row. Two of them were aces. Two of them were so hard that the other team could only have a one option hit on. We got a nice block on one and a hitting error on the other, and we were fortunate enough to get through that. And she said to me that, that night at the hotel room, there's just no way she could have got herself through that if we didn't go through those steps in practice. Mm. That's great. I'm wondering if you could talk about how uh, this, this person's wondering, how did you start building the culture of the team when you first came to Calvin? I didn't immediately start doing the things that I wanted to do as far as how hard we worked our women. Because if I would have done that, I might have had everybody quit. <laughs> so it was stages, um, but part of the holding the bar of how we treat one another, being really truthful and transparent and not being afraid to have hard conversations, loving them when you show people that you really care and you're going to do about anything with them, you're granted more grace when you speak truth into them. That has never changed. But I think um, every year we would add something on where I'd pull the seniors in and say, this is what I would like to do. Are you going to be on board with it? Because I think it's really going to help us do this, this, and this. And if I would get the seniors on board, um, and, and every time they were that, then we just kept building. Question from Twitter is, uh, what would you say is the difference between coaching, training, and teaching in your mind? I think they're all interrelated. I think when you coach, you teach. Um, I think when you teach, you're coaching. I think we are continually trying to train, whether we're a professor or we're a coach or a parent, that we are trying to train the people that um, we're leading. And that involves some coaching and cheering, and it involves some teaching, and it involves um, helping them, train them to do the right thing. Question by email, wondering, how would you explain your philosophy for those playing at a secular school for both coaches and players? I would explain it the exact same way, but I would probably, you know, I would hope the women that I would coach would know um, that I had faith and that I, I believed in God. Um, but I don't think it'd be a whole lot different if I was at a secular high school and wasn't allowed to bring God into it. Um, I think the concepts are the exact same way with maybe leaving the biblical part out. But it's still about core values. It's about doing, being the right, uh, being a really good citizen, being a really good person, and all of that will help. Um, when, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. When you feel love and you have people speak truth into you and you have vulnerability, um, that will have the same impact. Wondering if you can talk a little bit how, about how you deal with conflict on a team. We talk about it. The truth and grace part, right? We all have maybe some truth and some grace. Some of us have more truth and some of us have more grace. I tend to be a little bit more on the truth end, I think. Um, so to me, when you say to somebody and you're going to confront them and there's conflict, we would expect that there'd be give and take both ways. But one of the things I say to them is, uh, let's say I'm talking out to a player, I know your heart is in the right place, or I believe your heart is in the right place. But when you're doing this, it's hurting 
the team or it when you do this it makes me feel like you're disrespecting me and I want to bring it out because we just can't have that nothing gets in the way of the team so if something is hurting the team I will address it and the really cool thing about our program is we have our our seniors or our our captains who take a lot of ownership on that and they will talk to the players even before I do. Mm. Um, they'll bring me in for getting some advice, but it's really an amazing thing to see their growth as leaders and talk and confront. When you, when you, when you really love someone, it's easier to give truth because you know they're going to take it. Yeah, Put right that way. Uh, this person's wanting or saying that there's a lot of evidence that young people today lack resilience and often aren't equipped to respond to failure. Have you seen this in your players, and have, had, have you had to work harder recently to help them deal with failure? Well, that little note that says it's okay to make mistakes, yes, we do see, we see our women coming in, and they're afraid to risk. So we design drill after drill, um, activity after activity to push them to their limit in all of those areas, right? Emotionally, mentally, and physically, because they're all tied together, which will help them grow. And so there are times in practice where we want to put pressure on them and there's something on the line that they shouldn't make a mistake. But there are other times in practice where we go, let it rip, hit the ball and hit the back line, the whole back wall. Who cares? Let's see how hard you can hit the ball. Right? So you give them opportunity and you don't get angry with them or get on them or have something on the line if they make a mistake like that. When you make a mistake, it helps you grow to do something different or better the next time. So we plan all of those things. The nine challenges are designed to do that, to help people risk and to um, be able to work through some of those things. This uh, person on Twitter is wondering, if in recruiting, how do you identify potential players who will embody the five core values of the team? I think it's really easy to sense what a recruit wants by talking to them. I think you can see it on the court. When we go watch players, yes, we look at what they do in the court, but we also look to see what they're like when they make a mistake. How do they treat teammates when their teammates make mistakes? How do they treat their parents how do they talk about their coaches? Um, it's also making sure that, you know, I'll be really honest with you, players that don't want to be held accountable in their life and grow in the other areas of their life, there are a lot of players that just want to play at the highest level they can. And they don't really care about the other stuff. And they'll weed themselves out and say, Calvin's not on my list anymore because they hear what we're about. And that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Because I want them to go somewhere that's going to be the best fit for them. Because if it's not Calvin, it's not going to be good for them, and it won't be good for us. Yeah. Uh, a listener is wondering, um, was there a coach that was formative in your life, or what have you learned from other coaches outside of Calvin? I try to learn from coaches all the time. Um, whether it's other Calvin coaches at the lunch table, or at conferences, or from my friends. I love getting other information from other coaches from other sports. And I think when you can get other ideas and keep things fresh, um, it only makes you better at what you do. And I also think there's a lot of things I've learned about how not to do things, right? So yeah. it's a, and, and the other thing I, I would say to that is um, you have to be authentic. So you have to be the coach that you're going to be that's going to bring out the best in your players because you're you. I can't, be, I can't be Coach Ray out there when he is doing all this stuff um, on the sideline. And we need Coach Ray to do that. That's my assistant coach. I have to be myself. It's not me. And I'm going to give the best version of myself to our players. Um, but I'm also going to try to push myself to grow in that area a little too. Yeah. Um, finally, we've got a question from, on Twitter from someone named Carson Warners. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> He wonders, which one of your sons is your favorite? Between that and my other son trying to phone me on my watch, um, because of those two things, I'll pick my oldest. 
Fair enough. All right, let's thank Amber Warners for being here today. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much.